0: Hello. On behalf of the Newhouse Center for the Humanities, I'm happy to welcome you all here this afternoon to hear Francisco Goldman read in the last installment of this fall season of the Distinguished Writer Series. Uh, Don't worry, we've got a great lineup already on tap for the spring. So I'm really excited to introduce our host for today's reading, Juno Diaz, who comes to us all the way from MIT, where he's taught creative writing since 2003. Junot Diaz has published short stories in The New Yorker Story and The Paris Review, but took the world by storm with the publication of his novel, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wao in 2007, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, as well as the National Book Critics Circle Award. In her New York Times book review, Michiko Kakutani called the book, quote, a wondrous not so brief first novel that's so original it can only be described as Mario Vargas Llosa meets Star Trek, meets David, David Foster Wallace meets Kanye West. She goes on to praise the novel's adrenaline-powered prose, noting its madcap, magpie voice that's equally at home, talking about Tolkien and Trujillo, anime movies and ancient Dominican curses, sexual shenanigans at Rutgers, and secret police raids in Santo Domingo. It took Juno Diaz 11 years to write The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wao, And in an essay called On Becoming a Writer, he offers a tale of extended writer's block that should warm the heart of all the would-be, will-be writers in the room. After detailing his difficulties in getting past page 75, he concludes the essay not with the breakthrough, rocky moment that we've come to expect from the movies, the moment when the novel starts writing itself, but rather with a tribute to the never-ending practice of writing. He says, You see, in my view, a writer is a writer not because she writes well and easily, because she has amazing talent, because everything she does is golden. In my view, a writer is a writer because even when there is no hope, even when nothing you do shows any sign of promise, you keep writing anyway. It's precisely because of this appreciation and dedication to the craft and the practice of writing that I'm thrilled to have Juno Diaz here hosting this afternoon's reading and conversation. So I'll hand things over to him, who will then introduce Francisco Goldman. Uh, Mr. Goldman will read, and then the two of them will have a brief conversation about reading and writing before we open it up to questions from the audience. Finally, we'll have books for sale after the reading and um, available to um, to be bought and to be signed. So thank you very much, and Juno Diaz.
1: Thank you. Thank you all for coming. To see um, my absolute favorite writer. Yeah, um, so good to see you all here. I wanted to thank the school, of course, for having us. Um, it's one of the things, of course, that. Uh, is uh, an enormous comfort and inspiration is how much the college supports not only the arts in the main, but most specifically the literary arts. Um, As we all know, uh, it's not something that all institutions, it's not an enthusiasm that all institutions share equally. And for this community, um, the college has played an enormous role. And ensuring access to a wide variety of the arts. And for that commitment, to that commitment, we're all beneficiaries, yeah? So I uh, wanted to thank, of course, uh, the school for inviting me to introduce uh, who I really is truly a friend and, and indeed my favorite writer. You know, the, it's these strange kind of Anglo Saxon formalisms. Yeah, the introduction followed by the fireside chat. <laughs> you know, uh, when y'all know you can ask better questions than I ever could. Yeah, but these things have their purpose, I have been told. And so we honor the charge given to us. Yeah, and you know, there's a number of genres uh, by which we can approach introductions. Um, there's the, you know, the accreditational, a list of, Nonsense that you've gained. Yeah, there's the personal. You know how how we grew up together. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the contextual, where you strive to somehow embed the artist in question in a, a matrix of value. Yeah, so we're gonna try to do all three very briefly, because <laughs> you figured you spread your shit around, and nobody can blame you if you specifically mess up on one. Okay. Uh, the personal, of course, is uh, Francisco Holman, is uh, an old friend of mine. Um, he's perhaps um, the writer that is most important to me, not only as a practitioner of um, uh, various uh, genres, journalism, um, fiction, uh, literary essays, and of course, confessional writing, but also as a um, tireless supporter, of Latin American and U.S. Latino writers. Um, His support of me was uh, instrumental in getting me to continue to write my very difficult novel. He, in fact, um, pulled me to Mexico City uh, for almost a year where I lived as his neighbor. And I've gotta tell you, man, spend a year with Frank Goldman Uh, writing in Mexico City and if you can't pull some shit off uh, it is never gonna happen you know Um, he's really an enormous inspiration uh, because of his multiple dedications Uh, those of you who know the work of Frank Goldman know that um, he pursues the various crafts with uh, equal diligence and equal courage Um, and I still I kind of still remember uh, remember Frank um, You know, almost every day, uh, getting up, hitting that work, and then reminding me that uh, the work is only as useful as your sort of commitment to life and to the world. Yeah? I have so many of my students who want to write as a way to short circuit an engagement with the world. They think they write first, and then the world later. I call them my little dentists, (laughs) you know? Anyone who teaches creative writing knows the dentists I talk about, oh, my little dentists. They're the ones who want to finish undergraduate, take maybe 12 minutes off, and go write to grad school. Everything to short circuit the world, yeah? Where, of course, we know that art only comes from an engagement with the world, mostly by being lost. So um, I was just going to read The Bonafides and then finish off with a small piece. Francisco Goldman is the author of Four books, three works of fiction, The Long Night of White Chicken, The Ordinary Seaman, and Divine Husband, and one work of, excuse me, five, and one work of nonfiction, The Art of Political Murder, and, of course, his uh, latest um, extraordinary novel, say her name. Um, His first novel was awarded the Sue Kaufman Prize for First Fiction from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. The Ordinary Seaman, his second novel, was finalist for the International Impact Dublin Literary Award, and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in Fiction, The Art of Political Murder, uh, was a New York Times Notable Book of 2007, and a Washington Post Book World 100 Best Books of 2007. He has been the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and is a a fellow at the New York Public Library Center for Scholars and Writers, and he is currently the Alan K. Smith Professor of English at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. His fiction and journalism have appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, The New York Times Magazine, Esquire, The New York Review of Books, Outside, and many other publications. He lives between both in New York City and Mexico City. And finally, um, uh, if you'll forgive some exaggeration, or at least uh, sort of, you know, uh, beginner's passion, I say, as a writer, Francisco Goldman is a model of the life extraordinary. It is a life extraordinary in courage and in resilience. As a journalist who covered the wars in Central America in the 80s and continues to this very day to follow the story of trauma-scarred societies haunted by the legacies of torture, terror, and political violence, Francisco Goldman's work is absolutely essential. As a novelist, who in four important novels has indelibly mapped what it is to be Latin America and U.S. Latino in the endless age of heartbreak that is our history, Frank's work is absolutely essential. It reminds us how profoundly implicated we all are in what happens around us. It reminds us that you cannot have a cozy domestic tale of suburban Massachusetts woe without a young murdered woman in a morgue in Guatemala City. One ties silently, invisibly to the other, whether you wish to recognize it or not. The work of Francisco Goldman delivers the kind of truths without which we cannot know our human selves, without which we cannot know our world. It takes courage to write, as Goldman does. But my god, are we not glad when somewhere, out, someone out there can do it. Frank is a model for any writer who strikes out in a different direction and who would place an engagement with the world far ahead of an MFA degree, who would place the pursuit of human justice ahead of competition and prizes. I know no other writer who I consider more necessary, more insane, more beautiful and more true. What makes Goldman to me endlessly fascinating is not the extraordinary power of his prose, the singular searching intelligence of his art the America that he reveals at the edges of its empire, whether it is in Guatemala or the docks of Brooklyn. It is not his piercing journalistic fearlessness or the profound humanity that shines forth in his confessional writings. It is not the erudition and insight he brings to bear in his literary essays. What makes Goldman fascinating to me is that all of these talents reside so powerfully, so effortlessly in one man, and that none of these practices as of yet, has been able to eclipse the other. Journalist and novelist and essayist and memoirist, all these things simultaneously, brilliantly. And that is Francisco Goldman. Thank you. I'd like to bring Frank up.
2: You know, I love. He's one of the people I most love in the world. Um, I shouldn't even read. We could just stand up here and just tell you stories about things we've done together and experiences we've had. You should have seen how he saved my wedding. Because uh, he saved my wedding because um, I carelessly, uh, I didn't know what. Um, geez, I don't even remember what they're called. It's uh, a yeah. What? Esa huella. Esa huella que quería, está con la estampa. Yeah. What is that called? <laughs> I thought that, uh, that I needed for my wed- to be OK for my wedding to Aura in Mexico. And I thought, oh, well, my birth certificate has a stamp. You know, it's, that should be fine. And I got down there, and they were like, no way. This does not count. You can only get these from um, the State Department at the, the office of the State Department in the Massachusetts State House. I asked about getting married in two days. And I remember I asked I frantically, because he couldn't come down for the wedding for some reason. And he said, I remember his email to this day, Frankie G, I'm right on it, taking a whole bunch of crack. <laughs> and, and, and he went with his team. First they had to get my birth certificate, right? And I remember him calling me up and saying, um, you know, uh, uh, Freaky G. That's what he calls me. Uh, if you look at the, you know, uh, they want to know what elementary school you went to. Like, I, thank God I remembered. I went to school right here in Needham. I said Hillcrest. Right. And right, and then the, when you found that the first name was blank, right? Yeah. My parents hadn't like agreed on a first name yet. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And well, miraculously, he he saved. Well, that was just one of the things I had wrong. I can't believe in the end. I can't believe we're alive. Really, the the morning of our wedding, I was still pretty sure it wasn't going to happen. That we were just going to throw a very expensive party. You know, I just we're, as if you read the book, you'll see one of the themes that runs through it is how bad out and I are. Anything having to do with official papers or, or you know, it's one calamity after another. Um, it's. Uh, do do uh, do you still get pestered by like groups of junior high boys on bicycles who invade the Wellesley College campus and and like live in a fantasy world that suddenly some Wellesley College freshman is gonna fall in love with a thirteen year old kid on his bicycle from because that used to be me over here. And then it got worse as time got by. I mean, we were really, like, this, I just had to go over. It was like going to a shrine to go to Schneider Hall. I could tell you, like, years all through my adolescence, from the very puerile you know, to being in junior high and being up in the top, top little thing and trying to drop jello down people's head, <laughs> to, uh, to things that the driver who picked me up today said I shouldn't mention because the campus police might still have a warrant down on me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, <laughs> it's just some really crazy things happen over there. My mother remembered one of them this morning. I was with my mother, and she said, that's where you and your friends stole that television.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> she was pretty mad about that, because we tried to store it in our garage. It's like, where'd you get this television? The Schneider Hall. <laughs> um, Anyway, we just was a dare. We said, if we pick this up and carry it out, do you think anyone will stop us? (laughs) And if someone tries to stop us, just say we're repairmen. And we were like 15. (laughs) So it worked. Um, It was crazy. I'm going to read from Say Her Name. This is really a radical change in mood. But this is my new book. Uh, I have a few things to know before I start. I'm just going to read one chapter out. I was my uh, my wife, of course. She uh, died in the summer of Um, 2007, broke her neck body surfing in the coast of Oaxaca. She was an extraordinarily brilliant, brilliant, brilliant girl. Juno knew her. Uh, We had some great times together. Um, She was getting her, she was from Mexico City. She was getting her PhD in in Latin American literature at Columbia University. And uh, I guess, you know, you read the book, you find out why that was kind of a struggle for her. Uh, Because what she really burned to do was to be a fiction writer. And I mean, she had every scholarship on Earth, you know, the Fulbright, the Mexican government scholarship. She'd come out of the UNAM, the public university, and uh, um, but she really didn't want to be an academic because she really burned to be a writer. And you actually gets this gets told in the book. It's you know, and no disrespect at all to the department at at Columbia in, in Spanish language and Portuguese literature, but there was a very radical. Shift going on there that everybody knows about, where they basically were dropping literature for a very extreme cultural studies emphasis. And it's now called, I think, the department, they changed the name. It's now called the Department of Spanish, Latin American Cultural Studies. They changed the name of the department even. And she just wanted to study literature, you know, and she really wanted to be a fiction writer, like I say. And one day her thesis advisor said to her, Oh, Aura, you're so innocent, we have to get rid of this naive love you have for literature. And, and I went, oh, yeah? You know? And that's when she made her do what really the bravest thing she'd ever done, where she, uh, in secret, she'd never written in English before. In secret, she applied to the uh, Hunter College Master of Fine Arts program, which is directed by two really great writers, uh, Peter Carey and Colin McCann. And, and she got in. It's not easy to get those poor. She got in, and uh, that last year of her life, which was so good for you know, was such a triumph for her, but so hard because she could have lost all her scholarships at Columbia if they knew that she was secretly, you know, going to hunters. We used to call it the casa grande and the casa chica. You know, it's in Spanish like the casa grande is where you, a man will live with his wife, and the casa chica is the house he puts up for his lover you know, and so Hunter was the Casa Chica, you know, and, uh, and, um, and, uh, you know, so, anyway, I guess that's all you need to know, Maybe it's more than you need to know for this chapter, thank you very much for coming, and, uh, again, like I say, you know, it's sad, but it's, uh, I it was the funniest person I ever met in my life, and I hope some, you know, so don't be afraid, at some point you want to laugh, you know, um, Auda was stuck in a broken elevator in Butler Library. She phoned me in her cell when I was at Wadley. There were other people in the elevator with her, someone urgently ringing the emergency bell, spritzing panic through the phone. I told Auda to stay calm, that surely it would be fixed within minutes, and to call me back as soon as it was. When after 15 minutes or so I hadn't heard from her, I phoned and there was no answer. Class was about to start. We were discussing The Street of Crocodiles, the book she'd have with her at the beach that final day. I didn't turn my phone off. About midway through, I told the students I had to make a call and stepped out. I got her voicemail and left a message asking her to let me know that she was okay. I pictured horrifying scenarios, air running out, out of gasping, claustrophobic hysteria. Class was a disaster. When it was over and she still didn't answer, I phoned the Columbia switchboard was transferred and put on hold until finally someone at campus security told me there'd been no report of a stuck elevator at Butler Library that day. It was as if the elevator had vanished, with Auda and the others inside, and no one had noticed. Within seconds of her call to me, it turned out, the elevator glitch had fixed itself. The door had slid open, and Auda had proceeded directly into the reading room, where she was required to turn off her cell phone. And there she'd stayed studying for several hours until finally she checked her emails, saw my frantic messages, and remembered. Or that time we had to go to a cocktail party in Manhattan. Out I was at home, and I was a few subway stops closer to Manhattan, down in Dumbo, where I was subletting a friend's inexpensive writing studio for a few months. The plan was that she would take the F train to the York Street stop, find me waiting on the platform, And then we'd ride the next train into Manhattan. One train came. Its doors opened. A few people got out. Another pulled in several minutes later. The station, winter trapped inside, was a grimy cement and iron deep freezer. The payphones were broken. My cell phone didn't work down there. Robotic rats on the tracks eating electricity and iron filings. How could this be happening? We would timed it. I'd phoned her and said, all right, I'm ready to go to the station. And she'd said, give me five more minutes. And so I'd waited five more minutes. She's still trying on clothes, I thought, pulling dresses on and taking them off because they're too sexy or too ostentatiously fashionable or because they show off her breasts too much or reveal her tattoo. She liked the way her most prized dresses, including some of the ones I would bought for her, looked in the mirror. She just wouldn't wear them out of the apartment. Four trains had passed. My fingers and feet stung from the cold. My nose was running. I climbed the long stairs out of the station to phone her from the street. I had to walk nearly a block before my phone regained its signal. Wind gusted off the East River, whirling litter like frozen bats. She still didn't answer her cell or our telephone at home. I went back to the station. And as I descended the stairs, I heard coming from far below, like the crash of rough surf the sound of a train entering or leaving the station. On the platform, looking into the tunnel, I saw the dwindling green lights and orange dot of a Manhattan-bound F train. What if she was on it? I waited another half hour, then climbed out to the street again. I phoned the apartment where the party was, but she wasn't there either. That deja vu sensation of loneliness, bafflement, and sadness of, is this really happening? Then I didn't know what else to do. I redescended into the station. If I described all of this to a psychoanalyst as a nightmare I'd had, wouldn't it seem to be about separation and death? What had happened, it turned out, was that I had gotten on the train at Carroll Gardens and ridden it only one stop to Bergen Street and had waited for me there. She'd confused Bergen with York Street two stops farther on, or had spaced out when I would told her the plan. Finally, she trudged back toward home, feeling as bewildered and sad as I was, and she stopped into Sweet Melissa for a hot chocolate. Arriving back from abroad to New York airports, we always had to join separate lines at US immigration, even after we were married, without in the much slower line for foreign visitors. I'd always clear passport control well before she did, then wait by the wall in front of her foreigners came out. Sometimes guards would tell me that I couldn't stand there, and I'd retreat to the luggage carousel, but often they left me alone, my knees stirring as the minutes passed and still out I would have hadn't appeared. Finally, I'd see her step up to one of the booths, and I'd feel a new surge of nerves, because what if there was something wrong with her papers again, or the agent was in a bad mood, or just like to harass Mexicans and turned her away on the slightest pretext? We'd all heard stories like that. Someone at the US Embassy in Mexico had told out over the telephone that even having a Fulbright scholarship was no guarantee anymore of a student visa. What if at any moment, here at the mouth of the gate, she was going to be pulled back and returned to Mexico without even being allowed to speak to me? I rarely got to spy on Auda from afar like that, watching as she obediently pressed her fingers down on the fingerprint scanner and answered questions, meeting the customs officer's eye, smiling or even laughing in response to some remark from him, or else remaining serious and composed. This always brought back memories of being a small boy, watching my mother talking to a policeman who had just given her a parking ticket, or to a bank teller, or to a butcher in Haymarket Square, my awareness of their awareness of my mother's delicate prettiness and foreignness, my own sense of an unbreachable apartness. Until finally, I saw the shrug of the officer's shoulder as he stamped her passport, and within seconds, out was walking into my embrace. Moments of temporary separation and absence, and even loss, that were like little rehearsals for what was coming. Not premonition, but actual visitations. Death coming through its portal, taking out away, putting her back, receding back into its hole. Death, a subway train going the wrong way that you can't get off of because it makes no stops no stopping for hot chocolate and death. That week after our first Christmas and New Year's together in Mexico, we took a room for five nights at a boutique hotel on the beach at Tulum. The first three mornings, we wound up having to drive from Tulum to the passport office in Cancun and back again in the afternoon, almost 100 miles each way. Aura had realized before we left for the beach that since arriving in Mexico a few weeks before, she'd lost her passport. Tia Lupe express mailed out his birth certificate from Guanajuato to the FedEx office in Cancun. Mexican bureaucracy is notorious, long lines stretching all the way back to the Aztec Empire. Multiple multiple appointments to schedule at this teller window or that counter. Many official forms to buy at those nice at those tiny stationery stores, always owned by nice old ladies, to fill in have notarized, then buy and fill in again, because at one window, some bureaucrat found one stupid, infinitesimal thing filled out incorrectly, then re and so on. Auda was a veteran of Mexican bureaucracies, the Unams being among the worst. It was captivating to witness the unruffled manner with which she endured it all, her serene, polite, and even pleasant interactions with the clerks and secretaries, winning over even the most bristlingly petty or hostile ones. All this opened a window into her temperament, I thought. I loved waiting in those passport office lines with Auda, even though it was how we were spending our Tulum vacation instead of at the beach. Our rental car had a CD player, and at gasoline and at a gasoline station, because I told her I didn't really know his music, Auda bought a CD of Jose Jose's greatest hits. That was the only music we listened to in the long drives between Tulum and Cancun the same sad ballads her mother had listened to in the terrible tower weeping over her abandonment. On the Tulum-bound drive, we kept seeing small hand-painted signs directing us to Subway, which must be the name of a Mayan town, I deduced, pronouncing it Subway. I even said, maybe it says Subwaj, and we're not getting a good look at the signs. But no, it was a Y, not a J. For some mysterious reason, Someone was trying to lure travelers to Subway. But it turned out to be Quintana Roo's first Subway sandwich franchise in a small shopping plaza off of the highway by a golf club outside Tulum. would uh, hardly ever again passed by a subway anywhere in the world without remarking, here's your Pueblo Maya, mi amor, Subway. <laughs> to reach the beach where our hotel was, we'd turn off the highway onto a long stretch of dirt road. The car hitting the softer surface at nearly highway speed, bouncing and seeming to lift off and float through a brown cloud of churned up dirt as of riding one prolonged note of Jose Jose's sonorous voice. And that sense of dislocation again, of being propelled through a portal from an in-between world back into the beach town of Tulum. In the end, a bureaucrat at a window finally told Aura she could get her passport only in the state of her permanent residence. Why wasn't she told that on the first day? There is no answer to that question. Aura beside me in bed. What would happen to you, mi amor, if I ever left you? I would die, mi amor, you know that. You would, I know you would die, wouldn't you? I really would. And she laughed with a kind of childish delight and said, or if something happened to me, if it was me. No, Aura, stop. If it was me who died. Then I would die too. I would. Aura, don't even say that. You would die, wouldn't you? I mi amor, sadly shaking her head. You are so lucky, Francisco, she would say. You are the luckiest man on earth to have a young, intelligent, talented wife who loves you the way I do. Do you know how lucky you are? I know, mi amor, I'm the luckiest guy alive. You are, Francisco, you really are. I am, I know. And if you're going to be a father at your age, you're going to have to keep yourself in top shape. Babies weigh a lot, you know, and you have to carry them everywhere. That's why I go to the gym so much. I'm getting ready. <laughs> and you have to pay attention all the time to what's going on around us when we walk in the street. If neither of us is good at paying attention, then I'm not having a baby with you. I know, me, amor. I'll pay attention for both of us, I promise. Every day, a ghastly ruin, a ghostly ruin. Every day, the ruin of the day that was supposed to have been every second on the clock clicking forward, anything I do or see or think, all of it made of ashes and charred shards the ruins of the future. The life we were going to live, the child we were going to have, the years we were going to spend together, it was as if that life had already occurred millennia ago in a lost secret city deep in the jungle, now crumbled into ruins, overgrown, its inhabitants extinguished, never discovered, There's story never told by any human being outside it. A lost city with a lost name that only I remember, Subway. On the 96th Street subway platform where, after a late lunch at the Columbia Ollie's, we were waiting for the express back to Brooklyn, Auda was saying, oh, you know, it's a text that's about the way texts generate discourses among texts. So, no reason even to mention authors or authorial intention. Well, okay, I know that's true, but. But in her class that afternoon, taken up by a discussion of Borges' short story, Pierre Menard, Autor del Quixote, no one had laughed even once. But, Frank, Frank, she exclaimed. Didn't any. I love that. I, I tried to try that again, because only she would say it that way. But, Frank, Frank, she exclaimed. <laughs> Didn't anybody realize that Borges was being funny when he wrote that story? The story's narrator, she recounted, is a mediocre critic who is indignant because his late friend, Pierre Menard, was left out of some catalog of important writers assembled by another critic. Okay, but does anyone else agree that Menard was so great? The Baroness and the Countess, they agree, said Auda. both of them friends of Menard and the critic. But they're just the Baroness and the Countess, she exclaimed. And the French countess, she lives in Weichi Tower, someplace like that now, married to a rich gringo. Don't you think that's a clue? A clue that Borges was also being silly and making fun of self-important bad writers. She mimicked a scolding professorial basso. No, Auda, wrong. <laughs> silly, k? Okay, bad writers? That's not how we read texts here, Auda. The red and pink tassels of yarn, dangling like bunches of dwarf bananas three on each side, from the Andean ear flaps of Ada's ridiculous pointy wool hat, and the spiky red tassel that crowned it, jiggled in unison with her bobbing cheeks and the peal of her laughter. Ada was having fun too, her eyes gleaming. She'd go on like this, chattery, ebullient, all the way back to Brooklyn. Ada was discovering in those days that she wasn't like the other grad students, ideologically prohibited from considering the person and mischief of the author. She wasn't always so giddy to revel in or acknowledge those differences. She was often tormented with worry. I'm going to be expelled. They're going to take away my scholarship. They're going to send me to the gulag. (laughs) Do you think Jim has a wooden leg, she asked, switching the subject to one that had lately preoccupied her. Valentina's husband, Jim, the super rich investment banker, also quite a bit older than his wife, hadn't I noticed wasn't that a wooden or prosthetic leg limp that Jim had? From the knee down, she said. His shone bone, his shun shin. what do you call it? What if she asked Valentina if Jim had a wooden leg, and it turned out that he didn't? Would she be offended? <laughs> Valentina was already so insecure about how prematurely aged Jim looked that she wouldn't let him come anywhere near Columbia. Well, even if his shin is made of cheese, I said, it won't be just some ordinary camembert. That guy makes a ton of money. I'm mi Mo, she said sweetly, que tonto eres. One night a few months later, coming out of a movie, we let ourselves lag behind Valentina and Jim on the sidewalk so that I could study his walk. <laughs> Maybe he does, I thought. That summer they invited us to their country house and we went swimming. Arthritic stiffness was all it was. Waiting for the train to Brooklyn, listening, looking down into her face, so full of puppyish excitement and her own particular innocence. What was that innocence? What was Aura innocent of that I wasn't? Much past experience of failure and disappointment. Was love making me innocent again, wiping that history away? Ada was innocent of the power of her own gifts and that. Her innocent promise, and humility sometimes made her seem so fragile to me. At such moments there in the subway platform, practically dizzy with love for her, I would sense how vulnerable she was, so caught up in her own excitement, not paying attention, so physically slight, to a shove from behind by some fiendish lunatic off his medication into the path of an oncoming train. This recurring fear of a crazed subway pusher was sometimes so strong that I would almost feel the urge to push her off the platform myself, as if the fiendish lunatic was me and I needed to get the inevitable over with, or as if I just couldn't endure so much love and happiness one more second. And simultaneously, in a silent burst of panic, I'd pull her to safety, away from the edge of the platform. My hands were on her waist, on her shoulders. I would gently pull her back into the mass of waiting passengers and put my own body between her and the tracks and give her a relieved kiss on the cheek. I never understood it, this awful urge to push her off the subway platform while simultaneously pulling her to safety, rescuing her from phantom fiends. But also for myself. Thanks.
1: Well, that was a wonderful reading, Frank. Yeah. So, um, you know, Frank, I, I actually was thinking about, you know, an enormous sort of topic, um, but specifically the multiple. Identities that you have as a writer. I mean, I always remember the when you were working on um, uh, the Divine Husband, and we used to have these conversations about bilocation. Yeah, remember that. And so I'm wondering, what is your sense of it? What is your sense of being simultaneously a journalist, simultaneously a novelist, and then the other areas that you work in as well? Um, how do you talk to people about that? Do you find that um, sometimes people are privileging one identity over the other, or do you find yourself being able to juggle it with people, or defending one versus the other depending on where you're at?
2: Yeah, well, I think sometimes it's the latter. I think sometimes you're aware, you know, the person you are inside yourself is kind of immune in some ways to what other people might be thinking or judging or summing you up. You know, and uh, um, and and for instance, I rarely think of myself as a journalist, right? Even though I've done some journalism—a big book of journalism, right? But but uh, I th- you know I th- I th- I, th- I think I identity is constantly in, it's very fluid, and the thing that just totally it's um, very hard to talk about. Is how has death changed all of that. You know, there was a whole set of neatly constructed cells that were going along, developing, right? One that had this very, very certain idea of what a novel was supposed to be, you know, and what kind of novels I wanted to write, you know, and the other person who thought, yes, you know, um, the, the journalist you're talking about, the person who seems like overtly engaged in the world. Right, and and, and and the person who thought he knew about violence and wrote about violence and uh and was ready to, you know, rumble with the kind of people I had to rumble with. You know, in Guatemala, for example, one of them was about to become president, you know, and uh and then Every kind of idea I ever had about myself was swept away. You know, July 25th, 2007. Um, you know, since then, uh, there's, there's, I, I read a uh, an essay by Roberto Colasso where uh, he talked about how he had founded this line of books called uh, Delphi Books, where the, it's called the Libro Unico line, uh, Libro Unico. You know, like a unique book, which means these are books, they were specifically look for books that kind of were never meant to be written. You know, they weren't part of a writer's aesthetic plan. You know, they weren't he's not there like developing his idea of the novel. You know, in some cases they were, you know, maybe this writer only wrote one book his whole life, or they were he said the thing that, you know, what is a libro unico? A libro unico is a book that you pick it up, the reader picks it up, and he immediately Notes that something has happened to the author, and the author has ended up depositing that something in a text, you know, and 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 that's what right you know writing this book was. I mean, I, when, when when this happened, you know, I felt totally separated from whoever it was who'd written the earlier novels. I have a revulsion to violence now. People have been trying to drag me into this election. You know, I just can't de- I just don't want to talk about it. You know, it's it's I, I can't I feel like I didn't know about violence. I could write about it, but until 2007 when it shattered my life and I really learned what trauma was, you know, I feel like I didn't know about it before, even though I'd been around it so much. You know, I think that that's what uh you know, so So uh, you know, even writing this book, I remember a few weeks after the accident happened, a few months after rather, uh, that very kind lady in Italy, Beatrice, had invited me to her residence to just chill. And John Banville came by, the great Irish writer, and he was like, "Oh well, of course someday you're going to write about this, but it will take you like four or five years before you understand it well enough." And I was like, ooh, you know, that's really sage advice. You know? I, <laughs> love <the> yeah. <laughs> I
1: love the formula.
2: Yeah, I love the formula. Like, you know, what, 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 am, you I gonna, what am I going to do in the meantime? <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like, that's a long time. You know, and I just started writing that book out of that sort of total space of shock and trauma. You know, and, uh, and I think that whoever I am now... It, I honestly I say it sounds like a joke that I don't know that I'm starting over you know but it's that's the way I am now that voice you know take and and some of the old me is you know the old selves are in that voice but you know it's very it's a, I'm a it's a life started over it's basically it's just that simple everything started over 4 years ago you know and uh and, and and even now as I think about getting I'm gonna write another novel now I'm starting, but I know it's gonna be very different from the other ones, you know. So in a way, this a process of discovering again, you know.
1: And the book was uh not I mean, the book was written very differently and just even the time wise it was very yeah. different than everything else. I mean yeah. I'd never seen you in such a, a, a well, f- I don't know what the
2: word is. Well, the thing that was incredible about it, and I think here, this is interesting. This is something a friend of ours pointed out, Toy Bin, Colm. No, oh, Colm, yeah. He said that uh, he thought, saw in certain ways how the last two books had almost prepared me to write this one. Because Divine Husband is so much about the yearning for love when you don't have it, you know? And, uh, and, um, and, Art of political murder, because it was such a difficult case, it was such a dangerous case. It was really the kind of story where you felt if I make a mistake, you know, you might get someone hurt. You know, it's, uh, and it was so important to get rid of all writerly vanity and write, try and come up with just the most transparent, agile, clear, coherent prose. To deliver that story, and then in a weird way, so the two books, you know, and, 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 and a kind of forensic writing too, right? Like, and 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 the, and the style sort of merged because this book's very much about love, but it was also had to be written with great humility. I can't tell you a really holy humility. Like you, you can't show off with a subject like this, right? My my, you know, just like you, you had to make, you know, out I gets all the best lines in the book like like she got in life anyway but you know it really was so important that I serve the story not in any way try to call attention to myself you know which is something I'd sort of found myself practicing without a political murder in a strange way so so there's some consistency in that way yeah
1: you I know? think it's um you know literally as uh when you're in this role of interlocutor, the the more swiftly you can disappear, the better. And I think it's almost time for questions. I I did want to respond to something you said, Frank, which is very clear for those of us who've been certainly reading your book for a while and who've dedicated themselves to sort of thinking about how the work works, the significance of the work, and certainly how it inspires me. Um, I have always found in my heart that one usually has a very diverse bookshelf when one is a reader. There is a number of books, and we draw sustenance from all of them. It's hard to create you know, a hierarchy from a, a childish book that you threw away and that no one will ever write a dissertation on versus a book that's sort of considered cardinal when it comes to the canon. But certainly, um, of all the books that I love and I draw strength in all the writers, I've, I've always been... Um, sort of inexorably drawn to writers who, for some reason or another, um, are these Persephone types, which is they're always going into the underworld, into this place where so few of us wish to go, and they're always returning with, instead of news of the underworld, it seems that the only thing that we can return with from the underworld is news of the world. And what's extraordinary is every one of your books has a Persephone function. And every one, there is a journey to some remote margin and some, for of course, entirely different books. You would never think, if I changed the name (laughs) of these books, that the same damn person wrote the shit. You know, it's kind of an extraordinary diversity. And I think that this is, uh, for me, I've never understood where one person summons that kind of courage, you know, to do this repeatedly. Thank you,
0: Minister Duna. Thanks for a fabulous evening.